Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this episode with these quotes from Steffi Cohen, who is a uh, world record setting powerlifter. I think she's set like 16 world records in powerlifting. I just wanted to share a few things and then we'll get into it. The first thing I wanted to share is that, uh, again, the Gold Method app is now live. You can click the link in the description to learn more about that. But basically, it's taking my practice systems and making them available for you to try out. So if you're interested in practicing the way I practice and sort of breaking up etudes into different sections and picking tempos and having the uh, app itself tell you what tempos and how many repetitions to practice, you can, again, click the link in the description and check that out. Number two, don't forget to stick around to the end of this episode all the way through the outro where we can hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. He's been doing a really awesome uh, job with that. I think it's pretty fun. And so make sure to check that out. And then the third thing is just, I want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As brass players, the mouthpieces that we choose will have a huge impact on the sound our instrument produces, as well as how easy it is to produce that sound. Unfortunately, many of us find ourselves playing on mouthpieces that are ill-suited for our needs, making things harder than they need to be. If you're interested in trying out a new mouthpiece, Houghton Horns is the place to go. Houghton Horns has a wide selection of mouthpieces to choose from, including Giddings, Greg Black, Pickett, and many more. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you're a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today we are coming at you another solo episode, uh, me just talking to you about some stuff that I've been thinking about and I wanted to share with you, and hopefully it gets your creative juices flowing in the uh, thinking muscle. Um, normally, I'm going to... I would be sharing things that I've sort of learned through research or I maybe have been practicing in a certain way and wanted to share with you things like that. But this episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to take these quotes or these little sections of an episode I listened to of the Tim Ferriss podcast with a woman named Steffi Cohen, who is a multiple world record holding powerlifting champion. She's unbelievably strong. Um, I've seen videos. You can go on YouTube and check videos of her squatting 500 pounds, deadlifting, I think like 545, stuff like that. I mean, she's just incredibly strong, but incredibly knowledgeable about how all of these things work as well. And uh, there's just some of these quotes I found to be an incredible amount of carryover to musicians and the way we should think about things. So I wanted to bring that to you and share it with you and then kind of just discuss after we listen to the section, just kind of discuss what it could mean for us. So without any further ado, let's dive in to this episode uh, about these quotes from Steffi Cohen on the Tim Ferriss podcast.
So this first clip that we're going to listen to deals with Steffi Cohen talking about another powerlifter named Ed Cohen. For those of you that aren't familiar with who Ed Cohen is, that's also C-O-A-N, uh, Ed Cohen, uh, instead of Stephanie Cohen or Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. Just so there's no confusion there, they are not related, even though I thought the same thing when I first came across uh, both of these names. Uh, Ed is arguably the greatest powerlifter of all time. Many powerlifters uh, think of him that way. Uh, we're actually going to get into why he's considered that in the second clip we go over in this episode. But suffice to say, so you know who we are talking about in this first clip, he's just an incredibly strong powerlifter that's been around for a very long time and who has stayed consistent for that time. And he's really well known for the way he organized and structured his training for his ability to stay uh, consistent and be able to make progress throughout his entire career. So we're going to go through this clip and then we're going to talk about how it might apply to musicians as well. I recall a few of the things he said to me when we were chatting. And one was that he would, he would plan out his entire, I want to say season or a year mm -hmm. in advance, knowing with absolute certainty that he would be able to make every attempt. And I, I thought that was really thought-provoking, considering that the way a lot of people train is they may not even take notes at all, but they go into the gym and decide what they're going to do. Maybe they have some rough outline, but they don't have that type of programming yeah, he that had is laid a, out in advance. He had a uh, top-down approach to training. He kind of like reverse-engineered his program. So he would say, okay, so if I want to deadlift 700 pounds, so that means that I have to be able to deadlift seven or 650 for three, which means that I have to do 625 for five. And then he would reverse engineer from there, which I think is really interesting. All right. So for me, there is so much gold uh, in that clip. Um, pun intended, as you'll see in just a second. But before we kind of dive into the part about Ed, I wanted to just touch on Tim's assessment of the way he talked about some people will go into the gym and have no plan or they might have a rough outline, but it's very different from what Steffi described about Ed. And I, I, it sounds a lot like the way I used to practice myself, actually. I remember a time not that long ago where I would pull my instrument out of the case and I would warm up and then I would decide right there. I would say, all right, well, can I play soft today? So I would start trying to play soft and then think, all right, I guess that's fine. Can I triple tongue? Then I would try to triple tongue and be like, okay, that's cool. And then maybe I'd try to go up in the upper register and see what that was like. And maybe it didn't feel great. And so I would spend some time in the upper register trying to figure it out. And I would just go through a whole practice session like that. At some point, I would dive into etudes or repertoire, but uh, this was sort of a, an improvisatory way of practicing. And this can be good for variety. I'm not saying that it was inherently wrong because I don't really believe in a right or a wrong. But when we were talking about trying to build better versions of ourselves that have more in abilities and increased skill, it's incredibly difficult to do that with that sort of improvisatory way of doing things. So when that is your goal... It needs to be, our work needs to shift from what can I do today to what's the plan that I have for today based on what I want to get done this month or in the next three months or whatever. So 
Uh, a rough idea is better than no idea, obviously, but a detailed plan of how you're going to address your weaknesses and get better, that's certainly the best option, at least in my opinion. And it sounds like in someone's opinion, like Ed Cohen as well. So it takes work and thought, obviously. Like we can't just show up and go like, whatever, I don't care. We're going to have to think about the process that we want to apply to our practicing. But being great at anything will take work and thought. So we're not really going to escape that kind of work uh, anywhere in our life, especially if we want to be really great at something. So the thing that I really like about the way this is described is this kind of concept about I'm going to make a, a yearly plan. I'm going to plan out all of my, in Ed Cohen's case, all of my lifting for a year really gives us a concept of how we would attach the work we want to do today to the meaningful goals we have in the future. All right, when we plan a week in advance, this is fine. We then have something we're following, but we can't really make enough progress in a week to say, oh my gosh, I'm a completely different player. We can't even really do that in a month. Maybe in three months, we could see some sort of progress Progress, but one year from now, with diligent work, we could be a completely different player. And sort of being able to envision that player right now and then work backwards to where we are might help us say, well, the work that I'm doing today is going to serve where I will be in one year from now. And that could be really uh, encouraging to see that if I can think that far in advance and then really stick and be consistent with that kind of work, maybe I can actually reach it. So to be honest, uh, following and paying attention to the way Ed Cohen and other interviews spoke about the way he trained is a bit where the gold method kind of came from, the method that I uh, have developed for my own practice organization, right? So the goal-oriented aspect is where do I want to be in one year as a through Ed's sort of way of doing it, where do I want to be in one year? For you or for me, it might be where do I want to be in one month? But we're trying to figure out where we want to be, not where are we right now and we'll just sort of go forward with whatever, but where do I want to be so that we can orient our work towards getting us there? The O, the optimal starting place, is doing an honest assessment about where am I right now and then is there any amount of the quality that I want in the future that I can have right now based on changing exercises or based on changing tempos? Like how can I have some of that quality I want, some of that technical mastery that I want right now? And then of course the L, the logical progression is what Ed is talking about of how he's going to progress from where he started to getting to where he wants to be in a way where he's never going to fail any repetitions. He's always just going to stay right in the pocket and the more he is successful in his lifts. Not only is he building strength, but he's building confidence in his ability to complete these lifts, which is incredibly useful for his uh, competitions on the platform. The amount of confidence he has that he's going to be able to deliver his best effort when he needs to. And then the defined time frame is how long are you going to commit to one in particular plan before you make assessments and make adjustments? So this could be you want to be a specific player in one year from now or you want to be a specific lifter in one year from now, but maybe you're going to make four three-month plans. So at the end of three months, you have the chance to say, well, am I on track or do I need to adjust things? Maybe I've built some weak points up, but I have other weak points to address here. Things like that. We want to make sure that we have made some time 
time and some space in our routines to be able to uh, adjust. Because if we find that some plan we made ultimately isn't something that's going to work, we need to be able to commit to find out that it's not going to work and then have the ability to say, okay, how am I going to adjust based on the information that I have that it didn't work? So for application in your own practice, just think about these kinds of things. Number one is, do you have a plan in your practice sessions? This is a bit predicated upon, do you want to see improvement in your practice? Which I think most of us do, but I don't think all of us think about it as my goal is to see improvement. So if your goal is to see improvement, do you have a plan? And does your plan address your specific needs? If the answer to that is no, that might be a place to spend some time thinking about. And then number two, and this is there's a whole conversation in this, but I'm just going to introduce this idea of, do you know what constitutes success? So there's another incredible uh, powerlifting coach. I mean, more than that coach, but just, you know, strength and conditioning coach named Dave Tate. He's also an incredibly strong individual has squatted over a thousand pounds. He, in a podcast episode I listened to, talked about KPIs or key performance indicators, which is basically just saying, what are the metrics for success? How do we know that when we go into the practice room and then we work and we leave that that work was successful? What indicates that for you? Because far too often in my own practice, I just go into the practice room, put in the work and then leave without understanding if that was successful, really the only way you know if the work is successful is sometimes if you go to an audition or you go to a performance and it goes well, then you go, okay, well, all of my practice work was useful then. But if it doesn't go well, then it can be very easy to feel like none of the work was useful and I just wasted my time. So finding some sort of metric of... Uh, what you can control in that moment, let's say it's something like articulation. Well, the metric of success would be that the quality of my articulation is high. It may not need to be perfect, but that it's high and possibly you're observing that it's getting more consistent from time to time. That way we can say my work is successful in the moment while we are building towards having more successful outcomes and performances and things like that. So hopefully that uh, kind of explains uh, a little bit or is an interesting conversation to, to discuss. We're going to move on to the next quote about being consistent in your work. All right, so this next quote that we're going to listen to is actually from the same exact answer, and it's right before Steffi gave the answer we just listened to when discussing Ed Cohen and what made him so special and why people might call him the greatest power lifter of all time. It has to do with Ed's just his sheer consistency of showing up and putting in a great effort. So we're going to listen to this clip, and then we'll dive into it. Man, Ed is known as the greatest powerlifter of all time. He he has that, he's earned that title. He's been given that title by pretty much everyone within the powerlifting community. And I think what separates him from everyone else is just how consistently he was able to show up and perform at his best throughout the years. I don't know how many years he competed, maybe 20 years, which is crazy. Anyone who's ever attempted to get stronger, anyone of any person who's listening to this, just try training for more than two years. When progress starts slowing down, when you start coming into the gym and feeling like crap and not able to perform your best, you start accumulating injuries and you know it takes years for you to see even a, a five pound increment in any of the lifts. Just the amount of mental 
fortitude, mental strength that you have to have in order to just keep showing up and hoping that what you're doing is taking you closer to your goals or pushing you in the right direction is, is unbelievable. You know, I've spoken to Ed extensively about his mindset and about what some of his training theories were in, in his training methods. And he pretty much just said that he, I asked him if he ever stopped making progress and he said, no, he said, anytime my progress would slow down, I would go in and, and really take a look at what areas of weaknesses I had and I would tackle them with the same intensity that I tackle my on season or like the seasons where you're preparing for a powerlifting meet. And he would repeat that over and over and over again. So for me, this quote, there's so much that rings true and it just goes straight to my heart. Uh, One of them... One part of it, I suppose, is where she talks about, says anyone who's trained for more than two years, you know, knows how hard it is to show up and keep doing it and progress slows down. And that's very much been my experience in the gym. I've sort of shared about this uh, on Instagram and uh, maybe on the podcast as well, but I've been training for about six years now to this point right now. And I can attest to the struggle she's describing. I went back through my records and looked, and the first time I deadlifted 455 pounds was on August 26, 2017. And the first time I got 500 pounds was June 9th, 2018. So basically three years ago to the day that I'm recording this, uh, I got my first time doing 500. But now I'm still deadlifting 500. You know, 455 is still a weight that I have to think about. And it's that I failed so many times in that three-year period trying to figure out how to get stronger and things just didn't work. And I was trying new things and it wasn't working. And you just keep going. And at a certain point, you're like, well, is this worth it? Is this something that I should be doing. And for me, the thought of quitting never really crossed my mind, mostly because uh, my fitness life, I guess, if you want to call it, was just a part of what I did. So whether I was getting a lot stronger or I was just in the gym getting the best quality work I could in, I just wanted to do that with my time. So it didn't bother me a lot because I didn't have anything on the line, right? It wasn't like my whole livelihood was on the line and I couldn't get stronger and I was freaking out, things like that. I just felt like I just needed to keep trying to learn how to be better and eventually I would figure it out. And in all seriousness, in the past nine months or so, all of the information that I have picked up through watching videos or listening to podcasts or reading articles, coupled with the actual training I've done over the however many, you know, the last three years or so, it's actually started to pay off. Like I said, in the past nine months where things have started to become more dialed in. I'm actually making strides in my own training. And it's kind of a surreal feeling to now, after all this time, be feeling like I'm making progress in my training uh, after working for so long, for years to figure it out. And you know, the reason I share all this is because music is no different. And sometimes I lose touch with that because it's not that I don't struggle now, it's just the struggle is very different from the struggle I experienced when I was in undergrad and in grad school where there were days where things just weren't working and you just got to keep showing up. You got to keep trying. It's not what my experience on the trumpet is like now. You know, I've developed to a point where things are much more consistent from day to day. So having something like my time in the gym to help remind me what that's like is very important because, you know, from, from the age of 12, when most of us are in fifth grade until uh, I won my job 
at 26, it was 13 years, right? So we don't often think about that because, you know, we're when we're, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, we're maybe not getting quality work in and we're just like having a good time and doing it. And so, you know, maybe we don't feel like it's been 13 years, but that's a long time to be doing something, you know, and we don't really think about our journeys in this way. But yeah, by the time we get to college, many of us have had like five or six years of playing experience. And so we've put a lot of that time in, uh, but at the same time, we have that quote from Outliers that Malcolm Gladwell wrote, where he said, in fact, researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise, 10,000 hours. Now, what this is basically saying is even though we've spent five or six years by the time we had undergrad and I had spent 13 years uh, when I had won my job, that still may not be enough time for mastery, right? And so we're going to be basically in that struggle point is the whole point of saying this. We're going to be in that part where we're going to have bad days. And the ability to be consistent and show up despite the bad days and trying to learn from them is what will determine if we are able to be successful long term. So I did a little bit of math here just to point, just to prove a point. If you practiced for two hours a day, six days per week, it would take you 16 years to hit 10,000 hours. If you practiced 30 minutes a day, seven days per week, say you're someone who you're just doing it on the side, you know, maybe you're not like doing this full time for your job or whatever, uh, but 30 minutes per day, it's a kind of a hobby, seven days per week, take you almost 55 years to get to 10,000 hours. And uh, if, you, if you were crazy, if you went crazy and you went eight hours a day, seven days per week, you literally never took a day off. It would take you all, not, not quite three and a half years. So even insane amounts of practice every day, never taking a break, still takes years to get to that level of mastery. And I would argue that that would be a terrible thing, terrible way to use your time. So what we're seeing here is that to achieve mastery on our instruments, it's just going to take time. And the question is, how do we want to spend that time? Do we want to spend that time frustrated by the lack of progress we're seeing in the, in the practice room? Do we want to spend that time comparing ourselves to others, either thinking that we are worse than others, leading to sort of you know feelings of depression or hopelessness, or needing to feel that we're better than others and inflating our pride and our ego so that we can feel better about what we're doing? Or do we want to have efficiency by following a plan and have our practice be effective by targeting our weaknesses and being consistent in our efforts? I mean, you know, the way I presented it here, I think the answer is pretty obvious. But I did want to say that if your practice is defined by efficiency and effectiveness, I do think mastery can happen faster than 10,000 hours. If the quality of work is high and you're balancing the difficulty in your practice sessions correctly, I think you can get there a little bit faster than 10,000 hours. So um, the idea we're trying to present here is in relationship to Ed Cohen being called the greatest powerlifter of all time, his consistency of quality of work over the 20 year period that Stephanie Cohen or Steffi Cohen mentioned, that's what separated him. It's not like he's the strongest man that ever lived. It was his consistency that led him to be called the greatest. And I think that is worth thinking about in our own life because we may not be the strongest person on earth, but is there anything that we can take from Ed Cohen's consistency and apply it to our lives? So if we think about our own practice for a bit of an application, 
Uh, if you are someone who wants to excel at your instrument, are you consistent with your practice? And when progress slows, do you honestly assess your work and seek out your weaknesses to attack them? Or do we sort of try to gloss over them and just not address them and present, pretend that they're not there and then just say, well, I'm not good at that, so that's just not something that I do. And the third question would be, are you mentally strong in the dark parts of your practice sessions when things just seem like they're not working? Are you able to stay in the fight continue to stay focused or do we sort of fall into an emotional place of practicing where maybe things get to a place where we're not able to make good decisions uh you know and um, things like that so we're going to cover that a little bit more in this next spot uh, this next quote uh, i think that's pretty sufficient discussion for this previous one let's move on So this next clip we're going to dive into, uh, it's just a really interesting discussion on visualization. This is something I've been trying to incorporate into my own practice through more mental practice than visualization, which we will save that discussion and the differences between those two for a different time. But, you know, Steph, Steffi dives into thinking, talking about uh, visualization and how we're always supposed to visualize positive outcomes. And she's making an argument for it. There's also value in visualizing negative outcomes and how you will handle this. And given the fact that performances are hinged on our ability to recover and to get back on track and get back to our best playing, I thought this would be a really interesting quote to add in here and we could discuss it. So here it is. And when it comes to negative outcomes, you know, especially as athletes, we're told to always keep a positive attitude. We're always taught to think positively, to not think about anything going wrong. And I think that does a disservice because things are going to go wrong at one point or the other. It doesn't matter what your winning streak is, whether you're a boxer, an MMA fighter, a powerlifter, there's going to be a point where it's not going to go your way. And how you react to that is dependent on how prepared you were to deal with that situation. So I actually started working with a sports psychologist after I bombed out of that meet that we were talking about because you start doubting yourself. You start doubting your ability to make lifts on a platform. Pressure starts setting in. You you, you have this all these expectations by other people, by yourself. And it really terrified me to go back on the platform after that happened. I was embarrassed. I was really embarrassed. Yeah. And instead of avoiding those thoughts, you know, the, the, the thought of things going wrong was, was what was in my mind every single day after that. Well, what if that happens to me again? And then I asked myself the question, well, what if that happens to me again? Like, how am I going to respond? Like, I, I should probably have a plan of, you know, what I'm going to do if that ever happens again. So I started visualizing, like I said, negative outcomes. So I go, I go through the same beginning of the visual imagery, starting from putting my singlet on, putting my shoes on. They call my name. The bar is loaded. Go onto the platform. I say it's a squat. I squat and I miss. Okay, what am I going to do? And I just played with different scenarios of how I was going to react to a situation like that. And what's interesting is that... What would be some examples of how you might respond that you would visualize? So how I've responded in the past was I've cried hysterically, terrified that I wasn't going to make my next attempt. I've been really angry. 
assign the blame to someone else. Oh, it's my coach's fault for picking the wrong weight or it's the judge's fault. It was actually a good lift. It's their fault for not seeing it. They don't like me. The person who wrapped my knees, they don't know what they're doing. My left part of my knee was hurting me. I would have just assigned the blame to something external to someone else and subsequently just have, you know, be upset or sad or angry or whatever it might be. And so when you're visualizing these negative outcomes, are you visualizing those responses or different responses? So I would practice, I would practice going through different scenarios. And, and when I arrived at one that I thought would be the best course of action, then that's what I stick to. And what's interesting is that the next time I competed was the same competition just the following year. And I got up there, I was more prepared than I had ever been. I had been doing sports psychology for an entire year. I took time off after my injury. I was feeling strong. I was making a ton of progress, feeling confident. And I got up to a platform and I missed my first squat attempt, which is something that I could have done that I had done in training for five reps. So it's relatively light. Like something that you can do for five reps is like you're 80, 85%. And I missed it on depth. So the judges from the side didn't think that my hip crease was below my knee. That's how they determined depth. And they gave me red lights. You know, previously I would have reacted to that very upset. I would have, you know, blamed them for not seeing the right thing or whatever. And I mean, I just totally brushed it off. Like I was, I felt like I had been there a million times. And, you know, when my, my fiance was there, he's like all worried about how I'm going to react because in previous situations I would have been very upset. And it would have thrown me completely off my game. Uh, And instead, I just kind of laughed it off and was like, I've been here before. I know exactly what to do. Don't worry. What had you rehearsed for that situation that you landed on as, as your choice? Exactly that. That I knew what to do, that I trusted my capabilities, that I was prepared, that I had trained really well, that I was feeling strong. I just kept repeating that to myself, that it was just a fluke you know, that I'm going to go back in there, uh, back up there and I'm, and I'm going to crush the second attempt. What's funny is I went up for the second attempt and got red lighted again. <laughs> uh, so at that time, I mean, I was pretty much reliving my experience from the previous year, the U S open. And you get three shots. Is that right? You get three shots. Yeah. But same thing. I was totally calm, collected. I just didn't, again, I didn't, um, my perception of that failure was completely different. I just thought of it as part of the game, as something that happens. That doesn't mean anything about my strength levels. It doesn't mean anything about my abilities as an athlete. But what does determine what my abilities as an athlete are, are how can I respond to unfortunate situations during training? How, how fast can I pivot, right? How fast can I adapt to the competition standards, you know, because judges are different every time. Bars are different. Platforms are different. So the better athlete is the one that can adjust to those changes in competition standards the fastest. And so that's what I did. So you left us with a cliffhanger. So you got red lights for two attempts. What happened for your third attempt on the squat and what happened for the lift or excuse me for the meet? Yeah. So I actually ended up going up in weight, even though I had missed my first two attempts, just because I was that sure that I had, that I could do it. Like I just, I knew it. I'd been there before in my mind. 
So I went up in weight and I ended up making it. So I hope through listening to that, you are already thinking to yourself how much carryover this could possibly have to music performance. I just, I've had so many performances of my own where maybe my chops didn't feel good or I had a lot on my mind or maybe someone around me made a mistake or maybe the conductor made a mistake and it just derailed me and I couldn't necessarily figure out how to get back on. Maybe I was just only thinking about the mistake or maybe I just, you know, felt so flustered and I started thinking about what the audience might be thinking about that mistake I made. And instead of focusing on things that I could control, I was just focusing on all the things that I couldn't control. So let's take the beat up chops example. We've to some degree all experienced, well, especially if you're a brass player, you've experienced being in a concert, having your chops feel terrible and just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to play my best. What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? But beat up chops or beat up chops, there's absolutely nothing that we can do about that. And focusing on how bad our chops feel instead of focusing on the music we're performing is not really a, to me, not a, a valuable use of our time. And, you know, talking about the mistakes of others or the mistakes of conductors uh, that might shake us or throw us off of our game, like we can't control that either. We can't control what other people are doing. We can only focus on what we're doing, but sometimes it can take our focus off of that. And we're, like I said, putting it on something that, has to do with other people. So, you know, we know that these things happen. This is just a, probably a small fraction of what people have dealt with in performance where they got shaken. And so because these things are going to happen, we should ask ourselves the same question Steffi Cohen asked ourselves. Well, when it happens, how am I going to deal with it? So continuing to use these examples, uh, we would say instead of focusing on the results of our efforts, I believe a better, more productive option during performance would be to focus on the process of creating the best outcome. What I mean by this is instead of thinking about how bad my chops feel, I could instead focus on taking a quality breath of air and releasing it with the confidence I know that is needed to produce my best sound. This is basically saying, I know what success looks like. I'm going to imprint success on this situation, regardless of how I feel or what I think my ability to do that right now is. Because in that way, I'm giving myself the best chance to focus on the right things and get the percentage as high as possible. And the flip side for the mistakes that someone else or a conductor might make, you know, instead of focusing on those mistakes that were made in the past by us, others, the conductor, whatever, we could just focus in the present moment and say, well, this is where I'm at right now. I'm going to leave that behind and I'm going to focus all of my attention on what I'm doing right now, making the most out of the musical moment that I'm doing right now. You know, when I hear this kind of conversation about visualization, I almost always think to myself, like, do I actually need to do that? Do I actually need to visualize? And, you know, maybe, maybe if we struggle to handle mistakes well, if we make a mistake and we fall apart, uh, maybe we actually do need to do this. You know, in auditions, making a mistake isn't a great feeling. For example, we've probably all felt that, but it can actually be an opportunity to show the committee how we recover, which is an incredibly important thing because professional musicians, we all make mistakes. It's, it's a reality of life. It doesn't really, like playing perfectly is not the goal. The ability to, in some ways, almost cover it up because of the compelling nature of our playing all around the mistakes is really what makes a professional. You know, how we recover and how we continue to play committed. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Jared Roden. He plays uh, bass trombone. Um, he told me the story about how he heard the Chicago Symphony when he was younger. And um, Bud had, you know, he was notorious. Bud Herseth, the former principal trumpet of Chicago. Uh, he 
He was notorious for being an incredibly accurate and compelling and committed player. But at this particular concert, Jared said that he heard Bud miss a note and he just was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, like sort of this stuff of legends type situation. It was like, I can't believe he made a mistake. But Jared told me that Bud played so compelling. His, his playing was so compelling for the rest of the concert that by the end of it, he sort of questioned whether he actually had heard that mistake, which I think is so fascinating that... It just that mistake happened and Bud moved on and he played so compelling that he he actually like kind of erased the memory of that missed note. So again, that's just, you know, like I said, stuff of legends, you know, like young players who look up to, you know, players of that caliber, you know, it I'm not trying to read into the story too much other than just to say that's a really interesting takeaway would be can we also recreate that kind of thing? So for applications and our own practice for this visualization uh, thing, I would just say asking yourself, does your time in the practice room reflect not only your desire to imprint successful outcomes, right? That's what we're doing when we practice. We're trying to say, I'm going to do these repetitions to make sure I can imprint what I want to be successful and have confidence in being able to do that when it matters in performance. But does it also allow you the flexibility in your, uh, does your practice allow you the flexibility to recover from negative outcomes? Are we saying, I understand how to focus on here, but in the event that I don't, I know how to get back on track. If not, maybe we should talk about some centering techniques or visualization techniques and what that looks like for musicians. And uh, if that's something that interests you, I'm happy to talk about it myself or to try to get some people on the podcast to talk about what that kind of thing looks like. So let me know if you're interested in it. I think that's a good enough discussion. Let's move on to the fourth and final clip. All right, so thanks for hanging in there with me on this episode. Uh, it's a little longer than my solo episodes usually are, but this is, for me, an important conversation, and especially this last clip. It's Steffi talking about feeling the pressure and of outside expectations and trying to uh, then dive into uh, what is the why? What's her why behind what she's doing and saying she was working with a uh, sports psychologist and this is some of the work that they did together. And the reason I wanted to put this in here is just to make an, more of an argument. We hear this a lot from people. I'm glad this conversation is happening, but to make an argument for our relationship with our instrument as a whole, as a whole person matters, right? It's not just about trying to make sure that whatever we do uh, allows for peak performance, but saying that if we have peak performance like Steffi Cohen, but it's causing us to uh, have you know, uh, bad feelings or to have negative uh, feelings surrounding this activity we're doing, we need to assess that so we can get ourselves hopefully closer to a healthier mental place. And a lot of that has to do with our motivations for why we do what we do. So we're not even just talking so much about lack of motivation, which we will talk about, but we're also talking about what is our motivation and is it a healthy motivation? Is it an unhealthy motivation? Uh, things like that. So let's check out the clip and then we'll discuss. Were there any other particular tools or benefits, maybe tools that you brought with you after doing a year or roughly working a year with a sports psychologist? We worked a lot on, especially being someone that's so open on social media, I, f I felt like a lot of the pressure that I was feeling was imparted on me by just externally 
but it's, it's made up in my mind, right? It's like, I felt like everyone was expecting something from me. So I guess it was just circling back at what my why is. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What am I trying to prove? Is it for myself? Is it for other people? And just always trying to circle back and remember why I started this journey and what does it mean to me? Uh, yeah. And another thing I guess was working on staying positive when you encounter bad training days. Cause you know, a lot of people see your Instagram or your, your YouTube videos, your training, and they think that you never have bad days that you have some superhuman willpower and motivation. And the reality is that it's, we, we all experience the same things. You know, we all go through days or weeks or months or years where we are completely unmotivated and we don't want to do a certain thing. So working on how to stay positive when things don't go your way, when training sucks, when you don't make progress, when you fail reps every session, when you feel like absolute crap, when 50% feels like 110%, how do you stay positive and how do you, how are you able to show up to the gym the next day without, you know, without bringing that baggage from the previous session, uh, onto your, to your next session. And a story that really resonated with me was, and I forgot where I read this, what book it was, but it was about a professional golfer that he would literally not admit to himself or the media or anyone that he had lost a game. He would just totally erase that fact from his memory and just continue on as if nothing happened. And I started doing that. And, and honestly, my, my training started going so much better once I was able to let go of my disappointment on a particular session. And once I stopped generalizing a bad outcome in a session to, you know, my entire block, or I, I stopped thinking, overly thinking about what that meant in terms of who I am as an athlete or as a person. So the reason I wanted to end with this quote is because I just feel that it's a, a bigger picture of what she talked about in this episode. A lot of what she said before was very direct and process oriented, which I'm such a huge fan of. But I, I just like this idea that it, this kind of discussion about your why uh, is very open-ended, right? It could be many things for many people. And there's you know, we, we want to make sure that we at least have the language and the understanding of how to uh, acknowledge right now what our motivation or what our why is right now. And sometimes we'll come to the conclusion that it's not the healthiest, you know, especially when we're talking about expectations and uh, the reasons maybe we got into things or the reasons we move forward. For many people, it can be expectations from teachers. Your teachers expect you to work hard or maybe they expect you to care about the things that they care about and you feel some sort of pressure that you have to achieve in your career to, you know, bring them happiness or to try to you know say thank you or whatever or maybe you have family expectations maybe your family doesn't quite get it and so they expect you to sort of prove that a career in music is possible or maybe they think oh this person's just like having this fun thing with music but eventually they'll come to their senses and pick a real job you know stuff like that Maybe you're surrounded by friends who mean really well, but because you seem to excel or you've started to pick things up, this happened sort of to me. Um, they expect you to achieve things. And, you know, when the Chicago Symphony principal trumpet audition rolled around, the very the first one in 2017, I got a few messages from people that are like, here, your job is open, you know, go win it. Like this is your job. And that's that's awesome. I appreciate the support. And I appreciate that people think about me that way. 
But it can also, if I'm not careful, turn into like, well, now I have to win this because that's what people think I should be doing with my career. They have these expectations that I can do this. And if I don't win it, well, then like I'm not able to live up to that kind of expectation that somebody else thought I was capable of. And, you know, I've dealt with that. And then the one that I've struggled with the most is what expectations have I placed on myself? Are my expectations to be perfect in performance? Uh, are my, is my expectation that I will know more than everybody else or to practice more than every, anybody else? Or, you know what, maybe you have some sort of uh, self-doubt or maybe you have some limiting beliefs and the expectations you've placed on yourself is to not achieve as much as you possibly can. You know, so these are all reasons we do things and we could call that our why, we could call it our motivation, but we want to assess this. Because if we find that our why is not healthy, the reasons we're doing our things in life are not healthy, we want to sort of assess that and say, how would we move towards something that we actually want in our life? A reason for doing it that we actually want that will be able to fulfill us. So here's a few examples. Wanting to help people is a healthy motivation. But wanting to help people so that they owe you something in return is not a healthy motivation or healthy why. But this happens all the time. You know, we've probably all been guilty of this to some degree, whether it's subconsciously or possibly consciously. We're thinking possibly subconsciously would be like, I did this thing for somebody that's really nice, but then later on you find yourself wanting help and that person didn't help you in the way that you wanted and you felt like, well, I helped you before. You should help me now. Or maybe it's conscious. Maybe there's some sort of political game that people try to play so they can get into some sort of powerful situation in whatever organization they're at or to be liked by other people. So they help others and they show gratitude and they use their time, but their expectation is that it will get something for them. In my opinion, that's not super healthy. Another example is maybe you want to share your love of music through performance. That's awesome. But some of us want to share our love of music through performance so we can be affirmed by teachers, family, or friends, right? To say, you have fulfilled the purpose. We have a thing to say, good job, you sound great. And that affirms you. I'm not sure that's the healthiest reason for wanting to do things or the most sustainable reason for wanting to do things. So hopefully that makes sense. I don't think we have to belabor the point. Um, uh you know, Steffi also talked about not just the motivation for why you do things, but motivation in general. And that quote saying everybody deals with being unmotivated at some point. And in previous episodes, I've shared my story about my motivation waning and not caring about certain things and wanting to become possibly a personal trainer because I was more motivated to do that. Uh, but I would say right now in my life, my motivation is high, but because that darker period helped to show me what my why should be, how to move toward a healthier and more sustainable reason for doing the work I do. So I enjoy helping people, but I don't have an expectation that it will lead to something because I find myself getting frustrated that I like to help people and have conversations, but I don't see it growing my business or I want to donate my time to play at a, a nursing home, but I don't necessarily see that it's affecting our, our organization with the orchestra in any way. You know, if this makes sense, like we, we do things that we think are the right thing to do, but I have found myself wanting it to lead to something as a result. So that's not the healthiest why. 
And it's a tough conversation to have with yourself, but a very worthy one in my opinion. So uh, for a final example of motivation for me, as a trumpet player, instead of working hard, I used to work hard so I could win a job and people would be like, look at that guy, he sounds so good. And, and sort of the conversations I had about people who were successful when I was younger, I, I, seriously, right now my motivation to work hard is so I can share what I've learned with others. I want to figure out how to play the trumpet at an incredibly high level so I can turn that back around, make videos, make podcast episodes to be able to share what I've learned with all of you. So hopefully you can benefit from some of this stuff. I want to be able to help and it kind of gives me a strong motivation to really push myself as a player. So that's an example of how I've moved from what I see as unhealthy motivation for doing things to a healthier motivation Um when we're talking about just lack of motivation in general, which we're going to feel. Step one, if you've been practicing for like 30 days in a row and you're not motivated, take a day off, right? Like that's the obvious solution. But if you have a healthy balance between resting and work and you're still not motivated, here's a few ideas that I think can help with um, motivation and consistency in our work. Number one, having a detailed plan of this is exactly what I'm going to do when I practice. This is why I have developed the goal method for myself is I don't have to think about what I'm going to play. I've already thought about that. You know, with a client one day, we were talking about this and it's he shared something with me that I thought was so cool. He was saying, when my motivation is high, that's when I should make my plan for the rest of the month or whatever when I'm not motivated. So you want to actually take advantage of motivation by not necessarily just practicing and having it be a one-day benefit, but maybe you should use that motivation to make a plan for the next two or three or four weeks so that you can ride that motivation all the way through. I just think detailed plans can really help you be able to show up and say, well, I don't have to make too many decisions. I just need to get started. And maybe you'll become motivated as you get into the practice session. Number two, seeing objective progress. Being able to design something that helps you see objective progress is very motivating for me. Um, three, invest some time in non-musical activities. Try to figure out like how to cook something else or uh, figure out, you know, read some books. Or for me, I've been learning about videography and, and lighting and making videos and, you know, just other things that would stretch you, would challenge you, but is not music. So we can have a healthy relationship with instead of music is this thing that I go crazy for. It is, that's the kind of person I am. I bring intensity and focus to everything that I do. And music is just one of those things. Number four, try to enjoy your relationships with people where you can talk about music and non-musical things, right? So it's just an aspect of our life that we do and it's not everything. Uh, I think these things can really help us give perspective in our musical journey. And perspective is everything toward being able to do anything in a sustainable manner, right? If I have a healthy perspective on where my trumpet playing fits in my life, I'm going to be able to show up, do that with motivation, and then move on to the next thing that I also value in my life. So the final point I want to make in this episode is it's kind of interesting to me, especially through the motivation type thing when we're talking about what is the purpose of our practice and why would I be motivated to do it, was take all four points and bring them together. Number one, our practice, the purpose of our practice can help us develop increasingly more efficient and effective systems to drive progress. That's speaking to the way that Ed Cohen organized his uh, training systems. Number two, our practice, the purpose of our practice can serve to challenge our mental toughness and our ability to commit to something we want to improve at. 
this is a true statement I'm about to say. It may not make any sense, but it's a true statement. If you become more mentally tough in your trumpet playing, you'll become more mentally tough in your uh, fitness journey or more mentally tough in if you're trying to eat a certain way or if you're trying not to drink or if you're trying to uh, read more books or if you're trying to um, sort of spend more time outside or if you're trying to actually just rest more. Like anytime you develop mental toughness, it will affect all aspects of your life. So being able to have a chance to practice mental toughness through our instrument practice that will benefit you in your entire life. So that can be a purpose and it can give you motivation to show up and do it. Number three, the purpose of our practice can be to give us opportunities to assess our mindset, giving us the chance to deal with limiting beliefs and self-doubt that can hinder what we're truly capable of. Basically, our practice can give us those chances to break through some of those plateaus and assess and, and acknowledge we may be some of what's stopping us. Our mindset, what we believe about ourselves, might be what's stopping us from being able to move forward, not just. This is a body-mind-spirit thing that Jeremy Wilson and Karen Kubitas talk about all the time. Like your, your ability to practice and play your instrument might be what's stopping you, but it might not. And these kind of conversations are important to have. And so our practice can give us those opportunities. That could be a motivation to show up and practice so we can have those opportunities. And finally, our, the purpose of our practice can be part of fulfilling one of our whys in our life to give us a sense of fulfillment when we complete the activity. Just saying, if we show up and practice and we complete it, that this can be part of living a fulfilled, multifaceted life where we do lots of things that are fulfilling for us. So... Hopefully this episode was helpful. I really thought I, I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time and I finally got around to it. So um, yeah, I hope this was helpful for you. Uh, this is where we're going to end it. Um, if you have any questions or anything like that, you can find me at thatsnotspit.com. There's a contact page there, or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at That's Not Spit. If there's other things you want to want me to dive in from this episode, or you want there's some sort of things I touched on but didn't dive into, if any of those things you want me to pull at those threads some more, uh, please let me know. Uh, I want to thank Tim Ferriss and Steffi Cohen for having that podcast episode so I could try to share with you how it might apply to some of our lives as musicians. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's message is for the creators out there. Don't be discouraged when your first attempt doesn't work. Remember, it took Thomas Edison a thousand failed light bulbs before he finally got the right one. So keep trying out there, keep creating, don't give up. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.